When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, adulting well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, That's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. I am your co-host Joshua and I am joined by the amazing... Oh, you're giving me too much credit, co-host Kevin. And uh, on today's show we have Dan O'Mahony and Dan has a very, very long um, uh, history with hardcore and punk music, uh, on, especially in Southern California, but really has toured the world, uh, you know, and numerous, numerous bands is currently doing what I think is an amazing, uh, video interview, uh, series with also a bunch of old punk people. And so we really just thought Dan would be a fantastic guest. I mean, really perfect for what we're doing. Cause I'm, I'm inspired by his, his uh, podcast slash live cast slash YouTube channel. And, um, and I think uh, the music he's made for many, many years is fantastic. So welcome to the show, Dan. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to do it. I uh, particularly get a kick out of you framing things within uh, our collective years. And then the fact that it's called adulting. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's all smiles for me. Dan's done a ton of music since 1938, and we've all enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Grammy Award winning 1972 album, <laughs> uh, The Punk. Well, I mean, we might as well just start at the beginning, though, because your, your first like, well known band was No For an Answer. 
Um, well, wait, how did you get into all this in the first place? Yeah. At some point you were a kid and you got, you got into punk rock. Well, so it was an interesting thing. I was a, I was a painfully shy kid, right? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> well, no, I really was. And, I believe you. I believe you. Yeah, I was extremely quiet and I was, you know, you know, blessed with early acne and horrible teeth and everything that the, the young the, the young ladies wanted. Um, so what I kind of saw to the path is acceptance in grade school and in, in junior high was not something that was ever going to be available to me, which is I wasn't any kind of a gifted athlete and I was never going to be particularly foxy. But around about 79 in my last two years of, of, of a Catholic school or Catholic elementary or junior high or whatever you would call it. This would be like, like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, like around it's there. Specifically seventh and eighth grade. Mm-hmm. In Huntington Beach, California, these monsters started showing up that were called punk rockers. <laughs> and they were ugly as fuck and outspoken and more than just vaguely frightening. And I really gravitated towards it. I didn't necessarily see myself in them, but I saw... I don't know, a potential self. Where would you see punks when you were in junior high? In Huntington Beach, it was interesting because they went from being this extreme rarity to being everywhere, including, you know, I'm in seventh grade and there started being these guys, uh, two, three, four of them in the eighth grade class. And they were just, you know, the wildest people I'd ever seen. And it was, this is 79 and 80. So just the fact that they had short hair and their jeans didn't make it to the top of their shoes was enough to make them adventurous in, you know, Reagan country. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you're, you're talking about Orange County, right? I'm talking about Huntington Beach, Orange County, which was yeah. arguably, in terms <laughs> of the mainstream culture, they're probably the farthest right-leaning portion of the West Coast. Yeah, I mean, and, and still, I mean, to some degree, right? There's... It's almost more like it's back. It seemed to get bored with its highly obnoxious, toxic sign for a few decades, but now it's it's not some weird thing that creeps in from the edges. It's a goddamn voting block. Yeah. Yeah. That's where, wasn't that where one of the more violent Trump protests was down there? Where happened down there? If you saw this one where the, there were thousands of anti-maskers and reopened California people lined up on PCH and they were backed down by about, I don't know, 40 or 50 officers on horseback. That was my hometown. Jeez. Yeah, that's not where I live anymore. I live in Orange, which is the miniature Huntington Beach, meaning it's it's more Mayberry. It's more Mayberry, but it's just as backwards. So, true story. I was born at St. Joseph's of Orange. That's where I took my appendix out. We're crossing, yeah. we're crossing the streams, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. My parents lived in. Uh, my parents w- w- met at um, Robinson's Department Store in, in um, downtown Los Angeles. And well, do you remember? Do you remember the old old traffic circle in Orange with the fountain in the middle? So it's in it's in a ton of movies. It's in Back yeah. to the Future. It's where the clock tower is. I remember it from movies, and I knew it was Orange because I, I I'm pretty sure my dad told me that because he loves he loves relating places that we've lived or been in to you know movie stuff. So well, I'm speaking to you from about 200 yards south of that circle. So. <laughs> Amazing. So so you had these you had these crazy guys that that were showing up and women that were showing or girls that were showing up and and so how, what was the impetus that kind of kind of brought you into the fold as far as well, the punk I was team? fascinated with them right off the bat and so naturally as defensive children do I pretended I thought they were evil and made fun of them but <laughs> the, second, the second I had an in to hear their music and the second I was able to convince my mother to you know start investing in you know Chuck Taylor's I was off to the races and by the by my freshman year in high school I was still kind of an on the down low you know 
silent observer. And yeah. uh, in, my, in my sophomore year, there were two really strong personalities at my high school that just made that impossible, which is this two fellows, Pat Dubar and Pat Longry, had caught a whiff of me. And through them, I always knew what shows were coming. And when I finally attended, I just saw them as an, you know, boundless source of adventure. And I was hooked. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes sense. There's always kind of the guys that, that are the, the friends that get you into it. And, uh, you know, I had, in fact, the, the friend of mine whose older brother played the dead Kennedys for us the first time, just text me today. We're still in contact. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, I'll never forget hearing that music when I was, you know, I was in junior high at the time and I just had no idea what was, what was going on. Here's the big, the big high school brother, like heading down to, to, uh, to Novato, California to see the dead Kennedys play. And I, was, and I was like, what the hell is a dead Kennedy? <laughs> well, it's funny. My first, my first concert ever. I mean, I had probably, you know, seen foreigner at magic mountain or something like that. But my first, you know, concert that I went to by choice, not by happenstance was social distortion in a classroom in an unused classroom at the university of California, Irvine in 1983. And it was not at all what I expected. It was more violent, less noisy, and up was down, left was right. But just the sheer confusion and frenzy of it was really addicting. Well, I think, I mean, in those days especially, the scene, I I remember hearing stories about, you know, the Southern California punk and hardcore scene and just being like, holy crap, those guys must be totally violent maniacs down there. There There was already a heavy gang contingent, particularly in Orange County. Yeah. I, I get I get them all blurred together, and now they're a lot of them are probably sixty year old men still wanting credit for their for their achievements. So I hope I'm getting this right. But at the time of that show, I think the people you were terrified of were called the League, and uh, sure enough, they were fully present there and putting their boots in motion. It was it was it was hard to forget. Yeah, but, I mean, up here it was um, you know all the the skinheads that hung around with Nazi Bob and like kind of like congregated around the farm in um in the in the mab um bay area skinheads i remember yeah and those guys were i mean for for young skinny punks like myself they were they were truly frightening individuals well what was funny was i grew up you know i was this goofball who as a kid i owned the bruce lee you know hello game of death onesie and you know, <laughs> studied, you know, studied kung fu starting when I was about four, and then graduated to actual conventional boxing. But you know, being a seventeen-year-old who knows how to throw a punch correctly, and being a mortal man who's suddenly faced with people who fight five on one, is two very different, uh, two very different <laughs> equations. You know, totally, totally. Seeing those bands kind of, kind of show you that you could start a band is that how you could start playing music yourself i I had a very specific notion or moment at which i knew i was going to be a singer and i it was at a fairly legendary show might have been 83 might have been 84 um i know i took my first cracks at uh singing in my senior year but i went to a uh show at the place that i always kind of grew up calling the concert factory because that was its final name as a punk rock institution most people when they're doing punk rock history refer to it as cuckoo's nest and i went to a show at the nest it was the vandals targeted demand and a couple a couple other openers it was a famous show because the singer of the vandals threw a rat in a blender and there was no sleight of hand you could see him do it and then dumped it on the crowd which was a step left as sexy in my opinion but what happened was it was the first show where i ever intentionally sat up on the side of the stage i think my, my ankle was jacked up or something and i got a good look at every single singer that night right 
Right. And with every single one, and this is a weird thing to be thinking about, I thought their phrasing was crap. I thought their vocals were unoriginal, and I just thought I could do it better. There it and is. That was, you know, watching four bands and going, this is fantastic. This is the best time in my life, but I can beat it. Yeah. yeah. The mission well, on. Well, and, you know, I mean, I will say too, and I, I'm not, we don't do this to stroke people's egos. We do it because we like the people that we interview, but there's definitely like, you know, like people after, especially after your earlier bands, like No Front Answer and, um, you know, the, just kind of the, how prominent that was as far as like, uh, you know, especially because they're like that scene, that whole like straight hardcore kind of revelation record scene mm-hmm. had such an impact at that time. Like there were some people up in like Northern California that would like when singers would kind of try to emulate your onstage persona, we, we would, we would like joke about it. Like oh, <laughs> someone's trying to do the Omoni right now, you know? And, and it was like, it was actually a thing. I don't know if people told you that before, but uh, you know, it, no, I it, haven't it, heard that. The one I get is that a lot of people, when they would order uh, plain black Vans low tops, they would call them the Omahoney. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense too. Kevin, how would you describe the Mahoney? Well, he just he just had a super intense style, and there, you know, like the way he held his mic and like his his hand sometimes behind his back, and there was just different things that that Dan did on stage that um, that sort of like a lot of young hardcore singers emulated at that time. I never I mean, had was, the let's let's let's. Let's call it what it is. I never had the stamina of, of like a Ray Capo. Yeah. You know, I was a bigger guy and I wasn't, yeah. you know, a world-class athlete like a Pat Dubar. <laughs> I, always thought, no, I always thought you should be leaning forward. I always thought you should be right in people's faces. I don't know yes. where the hand behind the back came from, but like, you know, and this may come up if we discuss Shiner's Club lately because the accusation has been level. But when I look at a lot of that old photography, it's not that I see me trying to do Henry Rollins. But no. I see me no, but I see me trying to do photographs of people like Rollins and John Brandon that were in my roles. Like right. those early those early Glenn Friedman photographs, all of those singers are coming right at you. Yeah. You know, totally. I didn't want to learn how to do scissor totally. kicks or jumps or you know, I wasn't gonna start wearing plastic sweatpants. But, <laughs> but I can wrap up the mic and come right at you. And that's what yeah. I did. That's yeah. how I felt when I would look at those pictures from the Op Ivy record, and you would right. see like Jesse Michaels just all up in the audience. I would totally like that's the way yeah. that's how I, you do it. Right there. I personally think that that singing, that sort of stage presence and singing style, and I agree. Like I, I sang for a hardcore band briefly in the in the nineties, and I didn't have. I mean, I did jump around a bit, but I didn't mm-hmm. have the stamina of some of those guys that were just like. I mean, they were like ape shit, and you know, and people always like. You know, and I'll I'll give a little a little uh, you know a little like you know sort of memorial to um, Chai Pig. I mean, he was like yeah. the you know like people. So many people emulated his like jump and kick style. You know, mm-hmm. and and but I, I felt like you know that in your face sort of um, hardcore where the singer was like doing what, exactly what you're talking about. Really, was mm-hmm. that thing that broke kind of the barrier between the audience and the and the band a bit, right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you also invite people to sing if they knew the lyrics, which is fucking right. awesome. Totally, you know, I love that. I still love it. You know, as an as a as a fifty year old, I just think that's like the. I just think that's such a huge like it's a barrier breaker. You know, you it's get funny, people the involved. Music, the music that I'm doing now, the last thing I fucking want 
is anybody coming anywhere near the microphone? I don't mean that I would send them off. Right? <laughs> <laughs> kind of a thing about it. No, here's yeah. the thing. First off, I haven't been singing in the style I've been singing very long. Right. And these songs tend to be about my dead sister, you know, right. about my self-destructive obsessive right. attempts to get over my divorce, things like that. I just can't see 12 fingers pointing to the sky and us all getting together as boys and doing that. No, that's, a, that's definitely a totally different. When different. I say die, die, you're not my darling. That's some smarmy, mean ass shit with dead sibling. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, well, it's definitely a different style, right? I mean, right. And, and it's good not to do the same thing forever. I mean, no, that's no. amazing. Yeah. So, um, so you got into punk and then you, you, you had this epiphany at the show and, and then what was your, your actual first band? Um, well, my first band that, I think is worth calling a band because it, it amounted to something. It wasn't just two or three practices between kids trying to figure it out would be Carrie nation with Gavin Oglesby and Carrie nation had a few different iterations. The most colorful stories come from the early iterations in 1985. The best music comes from the 89 version, which was sort of in the ashes and no for an answer. But in <laughs> right. 85, it was this kid, Jordan Arthur, who was in a band called all night rage, which, I don't know if I ever even heard, but we used to sit around this thing called the phallic symbol at Orange Coast College together. Um, Gavin Oglesby and then John Bruce, who went on to be in Half Off and Haywire. Mm-hmm. And the band was just insanely fast. I don't know if we owned a single piece of equipment that was worth more than 80 bucks. And things were prone to catching on fire during practices. <laughs> Not because we were pyromaniacs, because the equipment was literally that shitty. And right. it, the two great stories are come from the same practice, which is the PA had blown out and we didn't know it because my voice was just that loud. Yeah. They're still hearing me over the music. Um, and we discovered at the end of practice that the PA had been dead. We don't know for how long. And during that same practice, it was that, Hey, what's burning. And we opened the, we opened the thing to find the smoke and realize it's all coming out of the back of Gavin's hand. Oh shit. You know? So that was carry nation. Um, that, was quickly overrun by Jeff Boetto, the recently ousted bass player from a Southern California band called Half Off, suggesting that he, Gavin, and I write some songs together. Uh-huh. And, you know, Boetto was a bass player who'd actually played shows and whose songs had been recorded. And before we know it, Carrie Nation wasn't getting revisited much. And eventually we didn't even, you know, raise the issue again until four years later. Huh. Interesting. Three years later, something like that. And then that was, uh, the next band would be no for an answer. Yeah. Which no for an yeah. Answer was funny. Cause again, it was guys and let me know if I'm running off the mouth too much. That's no, no, no. no way. Okay. Well, the thing with the thing with no for an answer was people would say, what kind of music are you guys going to do? And we would say, well, kind of a melodic hardcore, a melodic thrash in the, in the, the vein of, of like the cooler stall of 13 stuff and definitely government issue. And then when we actually got in there and had only been playing music for a year or two at a time, we sounded more like DRI or MDC being right. played, being played at 72 or 73 or whatever it is. You want a record player. Like we, you know, with Casey Jones and with John master polo, we were, you know, trying to fit an incredible number of notes in a very small pace with a drummer who was essentially a, you know, a wind, a wind, a wind up organ grinder monkey. <laughs> you, know, which, you know, he. We all we all evolved over time. Casey's Casey's acquitted himself nicely as a drummer, but I mean that band was. There was no. I can't even make the mouth the mouth sound fast enough. Did yeah. you take? Do you take time between? Do you often have times between bands where you're not playing music, or is it pretty much back to back? Back then, I used to overlap, and I did that for probably about fifteen years. Yeah, out of nowhere, I took a nine year break. 
Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, no, like, uh, Carrie Nation started fiddling around towards the end of No For An Answer. Uh, I think probably almost just pushed back on the fact that No For An Answer went through nine members in two and a half years. Yeah. Or just me and, me and Gavin and whoever. To the point where later, when we did reunions and benefits and things, after the fact, we decided we, we at a certain point, we decided to only do them with the original four members. We had this rule. You didn't get to play in any of these late model No For An Answer shows if you didn't sing backups on Screaming For Change. Fair enough. <laughs> um, it was just that was the filter. That was how you didn't do it with Sterling or Chris Bratton or anybody like that. You did it with the really old farts from Orange County, me, Gavin, John, and Casey. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, so and you did. You, you played the like you played the big, the big uh, anniversary for Revelation Records, oh, right? How about it? How about if I play, if I drop that in the chronology, which will get us getting there in about a minute and a half? Okay. That's what I was planning on it. That's the two. It's a nice way to frame it. So Carrie Nation, I, I literally overlapped that with four one one. They were going on at the same time, and then I just moved on to four one one. Okay. Somewhere in there, where there's really no break, I also did this record with Chuck Trees called Voice Box. Um, okay. which was, you can call it experimental, but really it was a good musician playing with a terrible singer and them trying to make, <laughs> them, them trying to make it sound intentional. You know? um, then uh, after 411, I, coming home from the second 411 tour, I never came home. I stayed okay. in the area. I was dating. I was dating a young woman from the staff at Maximum Rock and Roll. I wanted to spend a few weeks with her, and the plan was I'd spend five weeks up, five or six weeks up there, and this is in 1991, and then I would come home, and we would get to work on the third 411 record. Well, I came home seven years later. Okay. Uh, but while I was up there, I spent six and a half years doing a band called Both Hands Broken that never released a record, which I don't know whether that's a testament to me having a lot more pull and being able to get things done in Southern California or whether I was just in a very different place because I spent – my years in the Bay Area really acting out, drinking a lot, fighting yeah. a lot, running with some pretty sketchy, pretty dangerous people. Um, I'm not ashamed of it. In fact, I have a tendency to glamorize it, but my body is paying me back for it now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you that's, that's why you didn't release it. anything because you were just partying all the time. It's not that I was partying. I was just, I was running around like a madman. Right. And when right, I wasn't, right. I did, I published two books while I was living up there. And that was interesting because that means, you know, you're hungover and trying not to, not to be a dipshit and trying to hang on to some of your hardcore credibility and you're asking a guy like John Yates to lay out, lay out projects and asking Ramsey Kanan to release them and actually getting them to do so somehow, even though, you know, if they lived in your apartment for two weeks, they'd probably never speak to you again. <laughs> well, that sounds you were just productive in a different way. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and uh, Both Hands Broken did a ton of music. And right. truthfully, it's some of the better melodic singing and maybe the only good melodic singing I've ever done. Kevin Murphy is really pretty quick to remind me that 401 is not exactly the high watermark in vocals. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm very proud of the I'm very proud of the uh, the both the both hands broken vocals. But I don't think there's any evidence of them out there in the world except for a four track practice tape that's hiding somewhere on YouTube. Crazy. Oh, yeah. Well, that's wild, man. I, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting when, when stuff just sort of disappears over time, you know, you know what? Um, I dropped the ball. I hope I'm not making you sick. So I came home somewhere in there. I did a no for an answer tour in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was six weeks long and we made $6,000 and everybody was sure we did it for money. Well, you divide six grand between four guys over six weeks and I haven't met a job yet that pays that little. 
So we want to rethink what our motivations were. Um, then, uh, let's see, I came home, uh, did a lot of project music, uh, seven inch called John Henry holiday. Um, Oh, I did speak. Jesus. I did two. I did another revelation band with Joe Foster from unity. Yeah. And, uh, that lineup didn't last even until the first show before I staffed that band with musicians from the Bay area and, you know, young up and coming aggressive guys from orange County foster. And I have never played well with each other. I don't mean technically, I mean, personality wise. Right. Yeah. Um, it was after speak after the speak tours, which there were multiple tours, Europe and America. Um, that I think in terms of live shows, I hung it up for a very long time. And that's where the revelation, uh, it was the Revelation 25 thing in 2012 that kind of got me back up off my ass. Okay. And you just I can't believe really how harsh you SoCal guys are. <laughs> <laughs> it's rough down there, man. Or I don't know I if it is now. It was. I mean, even if you look what I've said, I don't think I've said anything particularly bad about it. No, it, no. You don't. I'm just such a bad so, but, but I think it's horseshit to misrepresent the neighbor of your relationships. I mean, I'm not. I'm not, no, running, I'm not running for office. If I'm not having pizza with the guy this week, I'm not going to talk like I am. Yeah. No, and yeah. I, I, I think it's fair to say, you know, this is what it is. I mean, I've had super, you know, really bad relationships with some of the people I've played music with over the years. And it's, it just is what it is. Like, but we I, just I, went I wanna, through that, Kevin, last year. What's that? <laughs> we just went through that last year. Oh my God. Joshua played in my band for a little while. Um, so, uh, I want to roll back to the to the stuff in the Bay Area though, and you, you okay. took a break. You took a break from music, and you it, you know personally, you sounds to me like now, if you look back on it, you're going through some stuff. I I've had my own, you know, sort of things over the years, and oh. um, go ahead. I'm just like I'm I'm curious, like what kind of I know I the the show got you back to wanting to play live music again, but what also because something else had to have changed. Oh no, oh, no, I was doing live music in 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 both hands broken. We played Gilman yeah. four times, played up the center a little bit, played a bunch right. of, you know, back alley stuff. Um, when I got back down here, I did speak when I first got down here, Joe brought it to me very early yeah. on, but when it was done, I, I had, was burying my grandmother. Uh, right. Musicians had moved back to the Bay area and it, I was just at a very different place in life. And it, it left me struggling with something that I struggled again later and dealt with a totally different, you know, another decade and a half later, but it was, I would say, I would argue that I was not productive in the punk rock scene during those years. What I did was I got very involved in electoral politics. I did, I participated in a couple 527s, right. political uh, websites. I wouldn't say that uh, this thing I ran called the 0.99 occupancy, the 0.99 occupancy fund was actually occupied occupy because i participated in occupy orange county and found a lot of their decision making really goofy right counterproductive but i wanted to have a voice that was outspoken and running contrary to, to the immediate influence of citizen united citizens united back then and we'll right. think about that and the website that preceded it which was called silence lies was it got me interviewing people in a way that I hadn't done since I was a fanzine kid. Right. During that time, I interviewed Kathleen Hanna. I interviewed Rollins. I interviewed uh, Bobby Seale from the Black Panthers. I interviewed uh, Buddy Romer, who was a third-party candidate uh, in the Romney-Obama election. Oh, I remember him. Yeah. I remember Buddy. You know, my I, friends worked for his campaign, actually. Okay. And, I mean, it was – I think it was good work. I also – 
I'm a better writer than I am a singer, at least most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of columns at the time. Um, this website called salon.com, which is, yep. it's, you know, center left leaning site. They, 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 um, put me on the front page of the site and awarded me uh, editor's choice 11 times that year. Nice. So it was, I was inactive in music. I can't pretend I was making any noise, but I was, I was shaking the cage in another way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I've gone through similar times and with my relationship with music, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, I have worked in and now own a social enterprise that for the last 20 years, that's been my, my thing. And, um, there's been times where I just don't simply don't have the energy to put into both. And, you know, I'm, I'm also involved in politics up here, so I totally get it. I just, you know, I was kind of curious more for, I guess, personal curiosity and and for people to kind of understand what you were doing when you weren't making music um and i you know i think all of those things are actually incredibly uh you know um like honorable you know i i I think more of us need to be that that have grown up in punk need to be involved in politics in a more uh meaningful way not just you know complaining about it on facebook right it's interesting it's interesting because i find myself trending that way in my personal behavior again and even in some of my creative outputs but absolutely not in my music right um which you know we can get to if we're running if we're running chronologically we're not there yet no we're not there yet in Um, fact i did a band i did a band called undying mm -hmm. in uh i guess it started in 2013 which was the year after the year after the rev 25 show and it was sort of inspired by the rev 25 show not to go back and revisit those times but holy shit there is a whole room full of gray-haired people and they have ears too yeah um and uh that band you know we had songs like you know a coke and a smile which was about the coke brothers and uh system <laughs> system, system <laughs> which was about the social which was about the inefficiency of the social safety net and considering that the other members in that band were a lot of sort of apolitical old orange county hardcore guys they let me get away with a lot they kind of let me run with my agenda Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, and that's, you know, there's, it's funny because I found people that are, you know, along the same lines that are super supportive of what I do, but don't really make a stand politically necessarily. And, and, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of have that though. Right. I mean, there's gotta be some people out there that maybe don't aren't as like passionate about specific things, but are willing to support you because of the creative angle. You know? well, it was an interesting thing. I, I did an interview with Martin Sprouts lately, who I, who you know, yes. at, at at an elevated level, I would sit there and say, "This is a guy who's an extremely effective communicator." But very, you know, short number of minutes into that interview, he flat out said, "I'm not good with words." You know, I'm not a person like you and some other guys who can do it that way. But I can get his his thing was, you know, he can get to victory in three words, and if one of them's fuck, it's a total win. You know. You know, so it's, it's, yeah, his poets are very powerful, right? Like they achieve really a lot powerful. with very little. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. yeah. I, I, we're, we're actually, him and I have been talking about doing a, you know, some merchandise for, for his stuff to, you know, get some of that, some of that amazing, amazing graphic work out there. Um, you know, but it's always like, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's funny talking to him about it because we talk about it, kind of hesitate because it's, it's always like a lot of what he does is so anti-commercial to some degree, you know, it's like, how do we fit in like merchandise and not make it m- merchandised? You know what I mean? Commercial like, is such an interesting word these days because digital, 
digital has made something, made everything so instantaneous and taken so much money out of music. Yeah. It's, it's all interesting. And like, you know, if you look at Martin, I mean, you used to be heavily involved in print medium. Well, now if you're a visual artist and you're, you're milieu, that's not the word I'm looking for, but anyway, your punch bowl used to be visual. You know, if you have good product, you can't really resist the urge to drop it online 24 hours later. Yeah. You know? yeah and then sure. so who needs to buy a book as something, who needs to buy a book as something they can fire up on their cell? It's, yeah, totally. it's, it's a brave, brave or fearful new world, however you view yeah, it. So by all means, sell T-shirts. Uh, yeah. This, is what, this would be my advice. Well, I think we're trying to figure out, too, if there's a way to, like, um, you know, put some money towards something good as well. Because So to know. harken back to the great major label debates of the 1980s, right? <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Um, I was in a band that was on a major label subsidiary. Mm-hmm. And my thing at the time, which was completely sincere, was if what I have to say is truly important and it reaches 100 people, that's great. If it reaches 10,000 people, that's greater. Yeah. I don't agree with that to the extent that I used to then, but I don't disagree with it entirely. And that's another thing is also that you get older, I think you acknowledge that gray is a very real property and black and white tends yeah. to be tends to be a shelter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would definitely agree with that. We you know, the when all that was going on, I was playing in a band with I don't know if you were writing your column for MRR at the same time as Brian Zero, but name crossover he 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 wrote a big portion of that um some of your friends are already this fucked uh <laughs> i remember that issue yeah and, and albini did as well and um so we as a band you know we had a singer that was you know very incredibly anti-corporate and he was the one that like that was passing out flyers in, in front of the Jawbreaker and Green Day shows in Northern California, right. basically comparing bands to Walmart. <laughs> so, hey, um, born against, born against, passed out protest flyers that are no for an answer, Joe. And, I, did. and, also, <laughs> and I proceeded to get up on stage and remind the audience that we were staying at Born Against Apartment that weekend. Oh my God! Leave it to Sam. Yep. I think I mentioned this to you when we were talking back and forth. The uh, Born Against played in one of my guitar players' garages, and there was uh, in Santa Rosa, California. And I think there was maybe like eight people there total. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's a ton of people in Nor- Northern California that hear that and are kicking themselves, you know, like because yeah, they were definitely one of those live bands that really you know took it to the edge at every right. show. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, um, Sam is interesting to talk to now because I wouldn't say that he regrets some of that stuff, but he regrets who he was during it. And that's yeah. an infinite hair. That's an infinite hair. That's an interesting hair to split. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a he's definitely an interesting guy. You've done some stuff with him, and and you you had him on the. His, is that interview up yet? It is. It went up last week. Okay, um, no, no not last week. See, it's senility's a bitch. It went up Monday. Okay, I was going to say, I think I'm a, I'm, I'm a week behind. So that's, it went up Monday and John Yates goes up tomorrow. It's fantastic. Where, where can people find that that want to go listen to it? Well, okay, so... I'm totally and, jumping the, the, the oh, timeline here. Well, so, so so be it. Um, if, you're, if you're okay with it, I'm good with it. Um, <laughs> we stuck to our chronology as long as we could. We went pure philosophy. Um, uh, as a Zoom cast where you can actually, I like the Zoom cast, which is on which is on YouTube. The YouTube yeah. channel Dano says so. I like it because you can see the human interaction, but I guess that's I'm part of that human interaction, so I'm valuing 
I, you know, I can see behind my own eyes and know what was really going on with my mind while I was trying to get answers out of these guys, right? But it's also available as an audio podcast on Anchor FM, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Awesome. And Dano says so. Dano says so. And uh, the, uh, the eighth episode drops tomorrow. I've been doing them on Mondays and Thursdays. That's with John Yates on Monday is Mario Rubelkaba from Off and every other fucking band under the sun. And then uh, the 10th episode is next Thursday with Billy Rubin, who's just one of my best and oldest friends. And I had all these other so-called heavy hitters. I could have gone with 10th, and I decided I'm going to take a break from this for a little while. I just want to talk to Billy, which yeah. is what I did. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's great, too. I, mm-hmm. uh, I'm excited to hear the Mario interview as well. Definitely one of my favorite drummers. We, um, One of my bands played with heroin in, a, in like, a church basement in mm-hmm. San Francisco, and they, they, no one knew who they were at the time. And so right. we, we had to play after them. And after he got done playing drums, I didn't even want to set my kid up. I was just like, Jesus. Did you ever see that Tom Cruise? You ever see the Tom Cruise movie? Uh, the one where it's basically Groundhog Day with guns. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, Edge of Tomorrow, I think it's called. Yes. Okay, the first time I ever saw Mario play drums, he was basically one of those monsters. <laughs> uh, he had he had these, like three foot long dreads. He was on the Alva skate team at the time, and you couldn't yep. tell. The only way you could tell his arms from his dreads, everything was flying around the room, was the drumsticks on the end. <laughs> uh, sounds about right. Yeah. So, um, jumping back to the timeline, you so you you got done with the Bay, you moved back down south. You you all played the the played the reunion okay, show. So, Ref Twenty Five, we initially didn't want to do it, right? Um. What it was was no for an answer had meant with really mixed feedback and with really, really mixed results uh, when we toured Europe in 94. And what we wanted to do and talk about a American elitist perception of the world, I'd never been over there yet. We wanted to go, you know, test out no for an answer in private, you know, because it's not America. It may be 14 other sovereign countries, but it's in private, you know. Right. So, so Gavin and I uh, put together a lineup and went and did six weeks in Europe. Um, and came home deciding, no, we don't want to get back in these waters. We're both in, enjoying exploring the things we're doing more now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was supposed to be the death of no for an answer because we, we were never going to do it if it wasn't sincere, if it wasn't real. Uh, and if there was too much contradiction going on, I've always known that you mature from church on from certain statements, but if you're just a completely different person than you were when you wrote this, why are you doing it? So the deal became, we're not going to do the band anymore, but we would still get offers. And so he and I kind of came to this conclusion. We're not going to be paid to do the band anymore. Or if we are, it's going to be only be under really dire circumstances or the money is going to go to something good. Well, Rev 25 came up and it was like, you know, I've put 16 records out. I hadn't put 16 out yet back then, but I've done lead vocals on 16 records and I wouldn't have lead vocals out on any records if Jordan, if Jordan Cooper hadn't given me my first one. So Revelations doing their 25th anniversary. I figured this is only going to happen once in their lifetime. Wasn't comfortable saying no to Jordan. Wasn't comfortable being ungrateful. I also knew we would come heavy with the smart assery. Right. In, in an atmosphere that wouldn't necessarily be excited about that, which is always appealing to me. <laughs> um, yep. And, uh, and so we said yes. And we were, Paid well compared to an 80s No For An Answer show, but we weren't paid like some of the bands that played under and over us. And I'm kind of proud of that fact. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got caught up on the rent, paid my father back some money. I'm not sure what the other guys did. Uh, we put up a 10-foot by 10-foot banner of the old No For An Answer logo, but the guy had a walker. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we did show, shirts that showed that, you know, had a disc on the back that the guy was bending over in front of him with his hands on his knees and said, these songs are a lot faster than we remembered, you know, and we just kind of, our merch and everything else about it poked fun at the aging process. And yeah. we had fun with that in front of the crowd. We said, listen, it would be very fake to get up in front of you guys here and say that we're the same people that we were then, that we're, you know, still against racist, racist, hardy Krishnas and bad tops, but uh, I'll see you at the yeah. bar type thing. Right. Um, and people really ate it up and responded really well. And what was interesting was in a part of hardcore where you might not expect it, I met with a lot of really open-minded conversation over that weekend. I got to see a lot of other people's maturing over the previous 25 years, and I didn't feel like getting back on the microphone would be Martian or be false or would require me to pretend I was anybody I wasn't. And that's how I started singing again. So I got to thank, you know, I thank Rev for giving me my break, and I thank Rev for giving me an insight into what California had become 25 years later. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And I've essentially been singing ever since. So talk about that a little bit. Uh, did Done Dying, which we talked about a little bit for four yeah. and a half years. Uh, really enjoyed it. Never really got much traction. Uh, it did okay. But really, from the old guard, they want to see the old bands for the most part, particularly if what you're doing is at all similar to that heyday sound. And Done Dying was. It sounded like, it sounded like a better job of the Carrie Nation 7-inch stretched out over 14 songs. You know, which, which well, it, it is if you love the Carrie Nation 7-inch and you're not particularly curious about tomorrow. Right. You know, in other words, it was a good thing, but it wasn't incredibly challenging. It ran out of gas just as a figure. Wait, so you're, saying, you're saying that people, if you if you have a better version of a previous band, it's not kind of not enough because you're only going to get people that aren't looking forward? I'm going to tell so. you right now, I'm going to tell you right now, there's a reason there's six revelation musicians making up about five revelation bands who haven't written a single song collectively in 30 years. Yeah. And it's because it's because it's because of where the acceptance is. I've tried to mature in my perspective of that. That sentence sounded kind of vicious, vicious. There's two things. They get to dedicate a lot more of their life to doing music and doing what they love in front of people that I don't get to do because I haven't made that decision. And it would be false and hypocritical of me if I didn't say I was envious. I am envious. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and who is one musician or artist to judge how another's mind or even stamina or even longevity works creatively? I can't sing the same songs over and over again. You know, if you can, we're not really the same, but it's a little bit self-congratulatory for me to say, you bad, me good, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, you're never going to see me do it. There's, with the possible exception of, 411 shouting at Dr. Zayas in the White House, you're not going to see it. Right. Well, it sounds like you just have your own rule set and you're, you're honoring your own rule set. I'm trying, but I'm trying to remember that, you know, I've committed far too many errors in life and I'm far too big a fuck up to go too far with the proselytizing. There are, there are, there are areas of stark moral contrast out there that are available for commentary that are a lot more clear-cut than whether or not so-and-so should be playing such-and-such such a club. Right. Well, but you guys have then – so after that project, when did, so when did Shiner's Club start? So uh, Shiner's Club was kind of birthed in tragedy. Uh, John Bunch Forever in 2016 was a was – a, Huge festival, but I think it was just one day, but it was three venues simultaneously 
three big stages. I think probably a dozen bands played in each venue, and they were all in the same city block. And it was to commemorate the passing of uh, John Bunch from Sensefield, and to right. raise money to raise money to provide for his son. Okay. Um, and I mean, it, it spanned from you know Rocket from the Crypt to you know Sensefield with stand-in singers to Scream to No for an Answer to Undying, the band I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just all over the map, great stuff with at least loose tendrils based in Orange County. And at that show, I saw this fellow named John Coyle for the first time in decades. Mm-hmm. And John and I had been friendly or cordial when John was about 16 years old, and I was probably pushing 20. Um, and I designed T-shirt for he and his older, bro- older, brother, uh, older brother's bands and, you know, supported them a lot at some, some uh, garage shows and so forth. Um, as John grew older and as I moved to the barrier, we liked each other less and less, I think because he was a broad shouldered, good looking kid whose band was doing quite well without my help. And because I was a guy doing a geographic from his own mother's death and, you know, drinking whiskey and chasing the members of neurosis as girlfriends instead of saving the world. Uh, you know, it was like John kind of took over in Orange County, one of a group of personalities. He was in a band called Outspoken that really sort of took up where the no for an answers and insteads and everything left off. And I was so divorced from that by my point in life. I just had kind of a condescending smarm towards it. I saw John at John Bunch forever and was so impressed with, even at a distance, who he seemed to have grown up to be. I mean, he's this, you know, gray-bearded family man, Mm-hmm. Excited like a like a like a like a school child to see Scream, who were largely ignored at that show, and I was able to relate to that, like him still having that passion for the Discord stuff and everything else. And we talked a little bit there, and probably circled back and talked again the better part of a year later. And during that second conversation, he suggested we do some kind of a seven-inch project. Well, I quickly put together a lineup of people that I always had always wanted to play with over the years or who I had played with briefly and said, I got to get more of that. And we arranged a practice for one night after a done dying practice. And I hate to say it, but about 10 minutes into Shiner's Club first practice, it was clear that done dying was toast. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was just kind of a lightning in a bottle thing. And the other three guys didn't really know each other, which made it interesting for me because I felt like a master chemist. Because, you know, when they they started playing together, they were from day one. I will always say this, not necessarily about the quality of the writing or the execution when we finally lay it down. But in terms of chops and width of abilities, you know, I'm a guest in China's club. Those guys are freaking ringers. How does the songwriting process work? I've only been in bands where kind of one person uh, kind of does writes all the songs and brings them. I write all it, the lyrics. John writes the bulwark of the guitar of the of the guitar for the songs. But there's an interesting every periodically about whenever it really becomes necessary, Colin will just bring in the black gravy, sexy demon ooze right when we need it. <laughs> and, uh, it's a nice combination. You know, you can only you can't have three or four shots of that stuff in a row. So you know, right, we, right, we, right. we break glass and slice up the paintings and raise hell and screech and let our voices crack for five or six, about five or six songs, and then Colin goes, Ahem, you know, and hits us with the dark stuff again. It's a it's a it's a nice chemistry set. Nice, that's amazing. Well, I mean, and in, in you guys, I mean, you played some great shows when you were up here um, the last time, which I am still kicking myself given the show. I was like, oh, I can go see these bands, and like for whatever reason, I couldn't make it that Friday night. Right. And I, 
now I'm like, fuck, you know, but you play with Charger and Dead Sound. You know, I mean, all those guys in those bands are kind of like local royalty. And, and well, we bust, we busted our behind the scenes. We busted our ass to make sure that was the lineup. It's a fucking awesome lineup. Like me, 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 and the guys from the Golden Bull were determined to have that be the setup. Charger initially didn't seem that thrilled about it, but I mean, they came through. And yeah. uh, for me, actually, I know, I know for sure that that's out of the just under three years we've been doing music. That's my favorite Shannon Club show. Well, yeah, I mean, that's just such a great lineup. And Dead Sound, too. I mean, um, Bill's in that band. They're really nice-looking boys. They are. (laughs) That's funny. Their drummer actually is the brother of of, uh, the guy that I play with now. Um, I'm I'm familiar with the Goshers, and you know that Mark Lynn's my old roommate. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. That's part of why I'm calling them pretty. Yeah, they are pretty. <laughs> they're, down, they're down right foxy. We looked, we looked like we were there to steal their cars. <laughs> <laughs> you guys definitely look like you've uh, you're, you definitely look a little rougher than uh, than the Dead Sound Boys. That's for sure. At top to bottom, that was a, that was a great show. It was a four band bill, and everybody brought it. You know, it was, nice. It was cool. Um, yeah, that's that's really. I mean, fun. We, I'm very competitive about music. And I wanted, yeah. I wanted Charger on that bill because I like to me this is the hottest thing going in the barrier right now, and I, you know, gotta whoop George. I wanted to see what I had in the tank versus that, and I was very pleased with the results. I mean, yeah, you know, they were they were as advertised. They were a fantastic band, but I felt like we could walk out with our heads held pretty fucking high. Good, yeah, it's definitely a great bill. And so you've also been doing spoken word um, for for a long time, time, actually. Yeah, for a while now. Uh, last one, I, ones I probably did were in. I did one in 2011 in TKO Record Store. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do, you do you feel like the the show now kind of with some of the guests you're having, you know, do you, does it feel the same a little bit, or is it just like a completely different experience interviewing I, I, people? I, I, I can give you behind the actual behind the curtain thing, which is I do say spoken word in the barrier, and they were really fun, and they yeah. went really well, and the barrier crowd really got it. Yeah. And I'd, I'd, I'd nudge up against some sketchy stuff. Like, I'd talk a lot about sex and about sexuality and rooms filled with the members of Spitboy and me with my Orange County sensibilities. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm proud of my morality and trusted my moral compass, but it was, you know, there's always the danger of misinterpretation. So there was, there was, yeah, no kidding. Up there that was very different from doing it down here. So when I started doing it down here, I came with a much more serious agenda. And just thought I'm playing this really straight, you know. I told the story about about some suicides with some elementary school kids that I grew up with, and at one show I did just a real serious chronology of my life in Orange County hardcore, and it didn't have that fly by the seat of my pants fuck with people vibe that had made it fun up north. And the Orange right. County audience that knows me, they're still, particularly 2009, 2010, they're still very much no for an answer and 411 on the brain, and that's not who's talking at those shows. No, no. I mean, and that's it's just kind of not as satisfying. Um, also, I started. I'm a pretty serious fuckwad on stage now. It's like uh, Paul Miner, the guy who produces our records, said, "You go so so fucking dark and so fucking intense during the songs, and then you know, that you hit the last fucking note on guitar, and Dean Martin pops back up. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, a minute and a half while you catch your breath. Go, how long I've been on? You know." <laughs> Yeah, no, I, you know, it's fun. It's, it's all, it's all as it should be. And anything else would be a presentation, which doesn't interest me. 
Right. And that, that makes sense. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, um, that's interesting about like your long sort of, you know, and very kind of different kind of like take on music over the years. You, you're, you're who you are. And like you said, the, the, some of the lyrics you've written over the, the, the more recent years have been dark and, but that's where you're at. Like there, I don't, and I don't see a problem with that. It's, you know, people well, have always changed. situation when we started Shiner's club and it was, it was interesting because it occurred on the same night as Ben Dyne, which was very agenda driven. Right. But, you know, I just kind of improving lyrics, uh, to the first few songs. I think we wrote three songs in our first practice, probably fully wrote two songs, not necessarily the, the finished lyrics, but everything I was belting out was coming from heartbreak. Right. You know, and just during the writing of the first four, five, six songs of material, uh, then my sister, who has had a long, long and painful story as a recovering addict, she died suddenly. Uh, and uh, I had gone, I had just gone through a long period of unemployment, of unexpected unemployment, and was financially on my back. And just everything that could possibly be going wrong was going wrong. Yeah. Um, and my self esteem was at an all time low. Um, I was really manifesting the rejection I felt following my divorce, even though it had been several years earlier and any here I come to save the day in my music would have been such bullshit. Right. So I just went with it. You know, John, John and the guys kind of gave me green light after one of the very first practices, Doug McKinnon, our drummer, drummer put on the group thread, I 100% love with Dan's, where Dan's going with the vocals. And I found a lot of forgiveness in that, that I didn't have to play a role or try and be, an activist with this band and I'm determined to keep it that way. That way. Um, also that's what those guys signed on for and what they enjoyed. And I can't obligate them to my politics after the fact. Heads yeah. Down, <laughs> no, and that's, I mean, that's, I, I think that's all for me, you know, as a, both a music fan and somebody that's played music, like that's like being genuine and who you are is as important as the, the, what's, what the notes sound like, you know, I, I find myself attracted to bands that whose lyricists are actually like, kind of like seem sincere and genuine. Like I just find it more interesting, you know, right. and you know, it's, it's, it gets a little difficult when I feel like it's totally contrived and like bullshit, especially if I know somebody off stage and I'm like, you are not, that is not you, you know, <laughs> just talking to another musician, there was also some interesting methodology, which was over the years in reviews, I had gotten a lot of credit for being a good lyricist and a lot of people would yeah. say like, Dan O'Mahony's the thinking man's straight edge, or, you know, as always, the lyrics are excellent would be a predictable line. In the in the in some of my record reviews, even if the records sounded like you know stewed shit, um, they'd still commend the lyricism. Well, there's lines like "Maybe, baby, I will recover." Maybe, baby, I fucking won't. In China's Club, it's not exactly Yates, you know. Um, and I had to get comfortable with that because that sounds like I feel. Right. So I had to not try and write books, and I became like. There's a lot of people draw comparisons between Shiner's Club and Black Flag, and I get it, and I understand it. I think it has more to do with that attack, like we were talking about, that that force-forward thing, and people not having a broad enough musical library to truly spot influences, because, I mean, you know, our drummer's a hardcore guy, our, our bassist is essentially, you know, four-string Danzig, you know, our guitarist is a desert rocker. And I'm up there ripping off all of Keith Morris and fucking Joey Ramone's phrasing. So, 
(laughs) If if those combined elements like make black flag, so be it. But he thinks the kids don't know what to do with dissonant hard charging stuff from Southern California. No, a lot of them don't. So, um, you're, I mean, if I'm saying if I'm saying I want to want you know, don't want to want to want you. If you really step back and look at it, that's coming from 1977 CBGBs, not, <laughs> not, 19, not 1983 Target videos. Right, yeah. that's true. What? So what do you? What? I mean, you're, both music and the industry you're in have been hit hard by this, you know, current. Right. State of affairs. What What are you doing to kind of? Uh, obviously, you're doing the show. You've been really aggressive about that. What the are show, you? The to, show The show exists because right now the band is not. Yeah, and so what about work? How's how how are things? I know you've been lucky enough to keep a job, and, well, and I run a corporate restaurant. Who I sign all kinds of stuff saying I'll never mention it online, which is my first experience with that kind of an entity. But one of the first things they did was guarantee all the managers' salaries. So I've been very lucky. Now, if this thing goes on too much longer and they're just hovering around breaking even, this company has 1,200 uh, 1200 sports cars. But oh, sure. if this, oh, that's around the world, not just in America. But if this, if this goes on, who knows how long that lasts or if it were to become even stricter, which I don't rule out because Americans have been so savvy in their virus control. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's been, yeah. I've been very lucky. Yeah, so we got this under lock. Don't worry about it. Mike, yeah. the great pain for me, you know, Chad's comes a bunch of old men with varying levels of responsibility. We have our share of creative and personality conflicts and, you know, we haven't been in the same room in six months. We could get in there and just have the fucking wires be all wrong. And wow, so COVID burnt this to, this to the ground, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. To me, right. the greater impact on music or my life musically of quarantine and of COVID is that I'm scared to death my favorite venues are going to be gone. Right. You know, like the Golden Bull seems to be doing a very, that's 450 miles north of where I live, but they seem to be very, very savvy. And I know they negotiated a rent break through December or something like that. And now they're doing a sidewalk service. Um, Alex's in Southern California is doing drive up liquor sales, but now they're selling kegs. And as a guy who knows his way around behind the curtain in bar operation, that's, you know, that reeks of emptying the building. You see those, 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 you know, they've been, They've been yep. shut down for four months and not selling things like kegs. And now as those kegs near expiration, they've got to be sold. And people drink them up right quick. There's yep. no scam there. But my thing is, is that, you know, when do my favorite rooms suddenly exhibit death rattle? And what can come and save them? I don't know if anything can. You know, yeah, I don't know. it may not be a correct example. It could be that the, the financial infrastructure there could support this for a couple of years. I don't know. But I guarantee you there's a dozen Southern California venues that can't say that. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's it's rough. I mean, I know I I have one of my best friends is the uh, the lead sound person at um, at uh, bottom of the hill, and they're they're just like doing everything they can. They own that building. the The main guy owns that building, and it paid off. Um, he, well, they rent the upstairs apartment. I don't know exactly how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have a feeling it was an investment property for him, right. but I don't. I don't know exactly, and I so I don't want to say. But I, they've been doing a lot of fundraising online. You know, they're they're doing like limited edition T shirts, and you know, just trying to keep the the yeah, everybody, everybody's doing that. But any of these places that are that are a full bar, like what's uh, do you, do you know much about the bar industry? A little bit, not a lot. Well, a, ty- a Type Forty Eight liquor license in California means. You can sell liquor, you can sell beer and hard liquor without food. In fact, you're not allowed to sell food. 
you have to have what's called a type 47. So type 48 is the license reference to your typical dive bar. Uh-huh. And so a lot of 48s with stages are these venues that we love. Right. Right? Well, a standard 48 that operates as a bar during non-show hours is making more on a Friday afternoon and evening in one week than they're going to make on five months of T-shirt sales and GoFundMes. Yeah. So no, I don't cool. see I don't see sustainability in those efforts, even though they're noble, and even though you know I've bought I've bought our T-shirts from and contributed to GoFundMes since this started. But my outlook as a former bar owner and a career bar operator is kind of dark about this whole thing. Yeah. I have a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety about the about the future of the venues. Yeah, no, it's tough. It's and it's going to continue to be until you know. What, what, I don't even know what the fuck it's going to take for this country to wake up, but it's it is brutal. And um, we're probably you know, just I mean, going to post a yeah. historically tragic, repulsive number, and then with a much with a very high body count, we'll, we'll probably still be kicking and screaming and protesting when the vaccine arrives. But that could be late next year, you know. Yeah, well, and, I mean, Georgia schools open this this week, so you know, and I'm 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 a parent, and I'm 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 like I don't, you know, I don't even like what what I'm hearing here, mm-hmm. and the school that my daughter goes to is extremely conservative with this stuff, and I'm, I, you know, I own a business that has a warehouse in production, mm-hmm. and we're we're like our protocols are hardcore, and and I still don't think they're enough sometimes. No, I mean, I work, you know, I work in the service industry and the general manager, I typically am hiding out in the booth doing paperwork in a, in a restaurant whose dining room is closed. But I feel for the kids who work for me that are, that are frontline and at the registers and out on the patio day in, yeah. day out and running takeout bags out to unmasked drivers and things. Um, I honestly, I question whether anything other than takeout and takeout behind plexiglass should be going on right now, but you didn't hear me say it. <laughs> yeah yeah totally um, so so um we're we're coming close here as far as our normal time okay. we are, we're there but i i want to touch on two other things i know you have a really like close relationship with your dad because i follow you on social media as well personally not just the show okay. um how's how are things going with him is he all good right now i have a close personal relationship with my dad because i hide a great deal of my life from my dad <laughs> Yeah, well. I'm invisible to him on the social networks. My greatest fuck ups, he has only a small understanding of, but well, he is fine. extremely important to me. Yeah, and he is and financially on his back, so I make pretty good money. But I'm always broke because I'm, I'm giving it to my old man and gladly because he did the same when the the situations were reversed. That's yeah. all well and good. I don't need any trophies for that. But the thing I used to find really exciting about sort of the second half of life for he and I is that we learn to enjoy just sitting on the couch talking shit yeah. and watching television, you know, yep. you know, soaking up his version of, 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 of politics, which is, you know, watching two or three MSNBC shows in a row or watching <laughs> weird or watching weird shit, like old, like old, you know, blue bloods, re, um, blue bloods reruns or watching sports together. And we yeah. would do it. We would do it on a relatively constant basis. Whereas we'd never hung out weekly or even close to weekly my entire life. And now I haven't seen him since February. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's got a bum leg. He's still bragging himself out at 5.30 in the morning cleaning pools because I don't have the income to take care of both of us by myself. Um, but even more so, he's got to be lonely. Yeah. And in that, I resent anti-maskers. I resent people who are reckless. I resent people who 
feel free to behave as they want because they're in a low-risk group. Because sooner or later, you dumb 20-something motherfucker, you're going to be standing next to my dad in a grocery line. He's 82 years old. He was a smoker for 50 years. And if he ever catches this cough and this cough is his exit, it's on you and I'm not even going to know it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, I have plenty of compromised family members, including one that lives with us. And I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And the last thing which I threatened to talk about, and we'll keep it brief, is baseball. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> you're a Dodgers yeah, fan. I think I, I think I copped to being a baseball schizophrenic online. Yeah, you did. You did. Yeah. You did. But, uh, you know, I I, uh, I, 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 I love baseball. It's Go ahead. A, wave your flag. I, and wave your flag and I, I'll douse it and light it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we do have those three championships from this actual century. So, you know. <laughs> you built a you built a big Wrigley Field in one of the most exciting parts of the city, and made yeah. it so you can't see left field from the bleachers. So whatever. Yeah, that, um, that's a. That, I'm not that, a big Giants fan, and the reason he brought this up, guys, is because online I wrote this big thing about California baseball, and I said, "Except the Giants, fuck the Giants." <laughs> um, and, but, but here's the thing: is I'm a ferocious uh, Raiders fan. Don't really mm-hmm. care where they're based. It's the. Yep gangster element of the team and the out and the outlaw pushback against every NFL commissioner that ever was that I get a kick out of. Um, I'm huge into boxing. Um, you know, right now I love my Lakers. I'm, I am, I'm definitely a closet jock but in baseball. My family owned a sand and gravel yard when I was growing up and we helped build Anaheim stadium when I was just an infant. So I grew up swaddled in, in, in angels gear. Then in the eighties, yeah. my dad, who's a tr- true blue Dodger, took me to Angel. T- took me to a, took me to a Dodgers, Yankees World Series, and we had field level seats behind the fifties movie star Richard Widmark. And by the yeah. end of the game, my dad and Widmark were talking gangster shit to each other. It was great. That's so amazing. It's hard to contrast that. Well, then you put me in the Oakland Coliseum with a bunch of Oakland hoodlums, and I was doing shots out of a doing shots out of a plastic flask with the chaplain of the Oakland Coliseum at A's games. So, you know, there's three experiences you can't walk away from. So I fly all three of those flags. But yeah. again, I don't know if I mentioned this. Fuck the Giants. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in fairness, I am an A's fan as well. As I mentioned to you, my father was uh, was was cremated with one of his A's hats. So. Can't, I can't really, uh, I can't really knock the A's either, and I've had probably some of my funnest baseball experiences in that park. That uh, so, big grizzly ass cement penitentiary looking cave. Yeah. it's the most amazing building. Well, and it was even better before Mount Davis, quite honestly, when you could see the Oakland Hills. Yeah, <laughs> the lovely Oakland Hills, site of many a great fire. <laughs> but hey, Dan, we, we really appreciate you coming on, and and um, you know, your just your honesty, your your bluntness, your you know, your, your your just your use of the English language. Quite honestly, your writing has been an inspiration to me for years, and I, I really appreciate all the music you put out, and the and the you know, and the just the constant sort of creative, you know. Uh, the the creative stuff that you've just been able to do over the years and i'm really loving the series it's just it's a it's really fun i highly recommend it to anybody that just i mean really that wants to be entertained but is especially people that have any sort of um you know history with the punk scene it's that your your guests are amazing the interviews are really fun and it's it's just been a joy to watch it like i mentioned no, it, uh, it's been a joy to do and similarly this was it was really fun to be 
allowed to be the the unbridled talker tonight. So thank you for the voice, guys. I really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you coming on. These are these are the reasons we do these interviews, and and it, it really hopefully gives our our uh, our listeners some inspiration. So, um, just as uh, you know, we do a little admin at the end. We're we're donating all of our Patreon to um, Hospitality House San Francisco uh, through the end of the year. They provide uh, care for individuals that have mental health needs, as well as people recovering from substance abuse. Uh, they give housing, and they're they're truly frontline workers. And it's a great organization. It's been around almost fifty years. Um, so we were donating to them, um, you know, really, um, in honor of all of our, our friends that have struggled with those issues over the years. And, and, um, we just appreciate everybody, uh, listening, you know, rate us if you can on, on iTunes or, or Google and, um, you know, keep, keep, uh, keep keeping on and, and thanks again, Dan, Dan O'Mahony for coming on and, uh, you know, we'll look forward to the episodes coming up of, uh, of, of your show. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks for listening, everybody.